I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. We want to begin by God's grace a journey through this chapter today, and we will pursue this, Lord willing, for the next few weeks. Let me just say this before we read. It was about a year ago that we went through John chapter 5. And over the years, we've done quite a few of the chapters in the Gospel of John, not consecutively by any means, but uh, when you put it all together, we have covered over half of the Gospel of John in various ways over the years. So we come to chapter 6 today, considering it as a unit. We'll read, beginning at verse 1, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. May God bless the reading of Holy Scripture to our hearts today. John chapter 6 is a crucial and dramatic chapter in the Gospel of John and in the public ministry of our Lord. It covers two days, two very significant and dramatic days in his public ministry on this earth. In chapter 5, we saw our Lord's rejection in Judea. In chapter 6, we see his rejection in Galilee. This is a very pivotal chapter, and it's a turning point in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to follow him through these two days in John chapter 6 and learn what we can and apply to our hearts. May the Spirit of God apply to our hearts what we see here in a way that we will not forget. just a way of personal testimony. I don't think there's anything that thrills my soul or does me more good than to study the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and to see him and to watch him and to listen to him, to hear his words, to see his actions, to follow his travels, to observe how he conducts himself in different situations, the the wisdom, the grace, the endurance, the self-sacrifice. I love to see my Savior in the four Gospels. And may the Lord use a study like this to show us that He is the Savior and that our faith in Him is well placed. And so we want to simply look at the opening 
and of the chapter, the background information that's given to us here, <clears throat> and make some applications to our own hearts from it here this morning. First, let us consider Christ's movements. Verse 1 says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. After these things, well, certainly after the the events and the discourse recorded in chapter 5. But there is some interval of time between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. This is not immediately after these things. It's an indefinite period of time. According to verse 4, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. It was almost Passover time. Now, Back in chapter 5, we saw in verse 1 a mention of another feast. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If this feast in chapter 5, verse 1, is the Passover which is the opinion of most writers and commentators, then the interval of time between chapter 5 and chapter 6 is almost a year. It's another Passover season. And while we're mentioning this, the best guess that we can make concerning the length of the Lord's public ministry is based upon the Passover seasons that are mentioned in the Gospel of John. The first is mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 13. The Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And then the one in chapter 5, verse 1, though it's not clearly identified, uh, this could well be the Passover, a second Passover. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 6, verse 4, the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. And then the last one in chapter 11 and verse 55, the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Unless there are other Passovers that are not mentioned, and if all these, or if, and if the one in chapter 5 is indeed the Passover, then we arrive at a period of time of about three and a half years, covering four Passover feasts that would, by the way, uh, fit with what is revealed in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, how that Messiah would be cut off in the middle of the week, in the middle of the week of years, of seven years. So that would be three and a half years. Whatever the case you can see then immediately that John skips over a great deal of time and events in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ between chapter 5 and chapter 6. John tells us at the end of this fourth gospel that if everything that Jesus said was written, the books couldn't, you couldn't write enough books to contain it all. And so he was selectively writing uh, the life of Christ here in this fourth gospel by inspiration. Matthew, Mark, and Luke go into much detail about 
the interval of time that John skips over here. And that's probably why John skips over it. He knows that we will read about what is called the great Galilean ministry uh, in those other gospel writers. John does tell just a little. In fact, it's been many years ago when we studied John chapter 4, how that Jesus was traveling north into Galilee. <clears throat> when we're doing a study like this, it's helpful to be familiar with the geography. And so I brought the map up here today. It's, uh, it's not that much bigger than what's in the back of your Bible. And if you're not on the front row here, it, it may be hard to see. But let me just point out what we have here. This is Palestine. We have this area in, in the south of Palestine known as Judea. This is where Jerusalem is located. Then in the, there's a middle section here at the time of Christ known as Samaria. And then in the north is Galilee. So the Lord spent much of his time in Galilee. He was from Nazareth, a city in Galilee. There is, uh, on the eastern coast or eastern border of Galilee, a body of water known as the Sea of Galilee. We'll, we'll read about that in just a moment. There is the Jordan River that flows through uh, Palestine, or is more or less the eastern border. It flows through the Sea of Galilee, uh, comes into the north, comes down to the south, flows on down into a larger body known as the Dead Sea. <clears throat> now, the Lord spent a, about a year and a half right in the middle of his earthly ministry, uh, a couple of Passover feasts, in what's called a Galilean ministry, a great Galilean ministry, doesn't mean that he was in Galilee the whole time because he did travel down to Judea, uh, for example, at the, the first Passover that was during that season. But he spent most of the time in Galilee, at that, in, in that great Galilean ministry. What John records for us in chapter 4 is how that he was traveling northward into Galilee and stops in Samaria at Jacob's well on his way up north. <clears throat> and then at the end of chapter 4, we see the healing of the nobleman's son in Capernaum. Capernaum is a city right on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> That would be sort of the uh, the official beginning of his great Galilean ministry. It was the first miracle during that period that we call the great Galilean ministry. And then John tells us of the great miracle that marked the end of the great Galilean ministry, which is the feeding of over 5,000. And we'll see that, Lord willing, next time here in John chapter 6. The only thing that John records in between the beginning and the ending, the, the, the first great miracle and the last great miracle of this 18 months or so, is in chapter 5, which is a journey down to Jerusalem for a feast, presumably the feast of the Passover. And that's where we see that lengthy discourse that uh, is in John chapter 5. <clears throat> So it's interesting just to see the, the time frame involved and some of the geography involved gets us more familiar with what's going on. At Passover season, Jews from all over Palestine would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this annual feast that had been in operation except during times of captivity and, and when the city was destroyed and so on. But since the days of Moses, 
Passover was the feast that the children of Israel uh, began to celebrate at the exodus from Egypt and every year thereafter. People's minds were on the Lord and upon the national history and the great works of God in the past. The slaying of the lamb of sacrifice and the painting of the blood around the door of their houses and the the death angel passing by or passing over those houses and sparing the inhabitants inside while those of the people of Egypt were, were destroyed. That is the firstborn of every household. And our Lord seems to draw from this Passover and to build upon it later on in this chapter, in the, the discourse of the following day, when he says, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. There's, there's a veiled reference there, maybe not too veiled, to the, the lamb that the Israelites did sacrifice in the Passover and so on. So, it says, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. It's called a sea in our translation. It's a very large lake. The, the distance from north to south is about 14 miles. The distance of the Sea of Galilee from east to west at its widest point is about nine miles. It is a, a lake that is mentioned in the Old Testament, called by various names in the Old Testament. It's called the Sea of Chinnereth or the Sea of Chinneroth. In, in our text here, it's also called the Sea of Tiberius. Tiberius, <clears throat> you might do better with your own Bible map, but uh, Tiberius is a town on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee, which was built by Herod Antipas not too many years before this, maybe about 10 years earlier. It had been built and named after the emperor himself, uh, in uh, Herod, who built that city, did that as an honor to Caesar Tiberius. It was Herod's capital city, by the way, and, and we'll see that mentioned, or the city mentioned a little later on in this chapter. Much of our Lord's public ministry is around the Sea of Galilee. If you're familiar with the four Gospels, you know that he, he spent a lot of time in Capernaum. That was sort of headquarters to him. That is the area, both um, Capernaum and, and a suburb called Bethsaida were the, the hometown of the first disciples, of Philip and Andrew and Peter. They were fishermen, as you recall. They did their fishing in the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee evidently had good fishing. It was also situated topographically in such a way that wind currents could bring fierce storms upon that sea very suddenly. And we see that more than once in the four Gospels. Those who have traveled over there tell us to this day, storms come very quickly and very strong ones suddenly 
uh, there on the Sea of Galilee. I've known friends that went over there and were supposed to take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee and weren't able to go because a storm had come up. Sounds kind of like uh, scenes in the four Gospels. <clears throat> now, our Lord's destination, or I'm sorry, our, our Lord's uh, location when it says he went over the Sea of Galilee was comparing the other accounts in in the all the four gospels was apparently Capernaum and his destination was a town called Bethsaida that's identified in Luke chapter 9 in Luke's account in verse 10 it says the apostles when they were uh, returned, told him all that they had done, and he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. Now, the best guess is that there were two towns called Bethsaida. And some writers defend that view and some try to defend only one Bethsaida. But we know that there's a Bethsaida that's near Capernaum, uh, according to John chapter uh, 1, where these first disciples were from. And that evidently is the one spoken of later on in chapter 12, that speaks of Bethsaida of Galilee. There is, on the other hand, this Bethsaida Julius, which, uh, if, you, if you can see at least where my finger is pointing, is over here more on the northeast side rather than the northwest side of the, of the shore. If there were two Bethsaidas, then they're about 10 miles apart. And the Bethsaida Julius was rebuilt from an older village or town by Philip the Tetrarch, who's mentioned in Luke chapter 4. Uh, he named the town after the daughter of Caesar Augustus, whose name was Julia or Julius. <clears throat> So when it says our Lord went over the sea, he's traveling a route by water that only traverses really the northern tip of the lake. There was also an, a, a road or a route that could be taken by foot to kind of make an arc around. You would have to cross the Jordan River, obviously, to get over to the northeast side of the lake and to be outside of the region of Galilee, that Jordan River sort of divides Galilee from this other region over on the other side. <clears throat> Bethsaida, uh, incidentally, means house of fish, indicating, again, the, the the good fishing opportunities that were in the Sea of Galilee. So, let's look at verse 1 one last time. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Just pause for a moment and let that sink in. The significance of this. Here is the Lord of glory, living as a man upon earth, the one who created the worlds, the one who created the earth. He steps into it as a man. And he makes a journey in a boat. He steps into a boat. He gets his feet wet. He makes this journey across a part of the Sea of Galilee in a boat. 
He's always on the move. You know, that's one thing that stands out as you read the four Gospels. Jesus doesn't stay in one place very long. He's moving from place to place. He's, he's seeing people, teaching people, healing people in villages and cities all over Palestine. He humbled himself to come into this world as a man. He, he reduced himself to space and time so that he needed a method of transportation. He traveled like any other man would travel. We're confronted here with the wonder of the incarnation. Jesus as a man among men, subject to the finite world and the limitations of time and space. And he did all of this for our redemption, to save sinners. May we be amazed as we consider his humanity. Sinless, perfect humanity, but full humanity nonetheless. Now, verse 3 gives us an indication of the reason for this journey. Jesus went up into a mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Having crossed that part of the Sea of Galilee, which by water was a span of about four miles. By land, it's about ten miles. By water, it's less than half of that distance. He gets out of the boat. There is, and, and travelers there, and even photographs, you can probably see it on Google Maps now. There's sort of a, of, of a level grassy spot when you first have the shoreline there, and then there's a series of mountains or hills that rise up beyond that, our Lord goes into the mountain, the hill, and there he sat with his disciples. The other four or other three gospels tell us that it was a time of rest. A time, we might say, to, to get away. The demands upon our Lord's time were, were, were tremendous. There was not even time to eat sometimes. People wouldn't leave him alone. And for his own physical well-being as a man, subject to the limitations of, of a human body, he needed time to rest. Again, we see the humanity of our blessed Savior. He needed time to sit down. It says there he sat with his disciples. And no doubt he was concerned for the disciples and their welfare and well-being also. They needed some time to rest. And one of the parallel accounts uh, mentions that. It says that the disciples were there with him. The term disciples, in this case, indicates the twelve. Sometimes, and we know that because of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they call them uh, the apostles. And a little later on, the twelve are addressed here toward the end of the chapter in particular. But sometimes the word disciples includes a broader group of people, any who were following the Lord on a more or less regular basis or for at least some period of time who were students and people who were studying him and following him. They're called disciples. That is, of course, to be distinguished from this great multitude or great company that is mentioned here in verse 2 and again in verse 5 that numbered into the thousands. And so 
our Lord shows us, and this is a very practical application, that we are confined to human bodies that need food, they need rest, they need occasional relaxation. We read in the book of Hebrews how that the Lord Jesus knows our frame and that he is tempted in all points like as we are. He is able to sympathize with our infirmities. Do you sometimes think that you're overworked? Jesus can sympathize with you. Do you think you don't get enough sleep? Jesus can sympathize with you. And that ought to be a comfort to those who trust in him. That's one reason. There's really another reason that John doesn't mention here, but Mark mentions it. Let me turn and read from that passage. In Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 30, it says, The apostles uh, gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things. And included in that all things, I should have read just the previous verses, tell about the the murder of John the Baptist by Herod. And the disciples heard of it and came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, (coughs) both what they had done and what they had taught. (coughs) They had been on a preaching tour, and evidently on the way back, they learn of the beheading of John the Baptist by Herod, and some of them have a part in burying the body of John the Baptist. And it says, Jesus said to them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. (coughs) Our Lord leaves privately. He gets in a boat, goes away from the crowd. Not only for some needed rest, but to avoid a premature confrontation with Herod. Luke adds in his account that Herod wanted an interview with Jesus. In fact, let me turn and read that. It's most interesting when you put it all in this context. Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, that is Jesus, And he was perplexed because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead and of some that Elias had appeared and of others that one of the old prophets was risen again. And Herod said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. Herod wanted to see Jesus. We don't know how or what measures he might have taken to get to see Jesus or to bring Jesus in for questioning. But one of the reasons that Jesus sort of disappears in secret and goes across to the other other shore of the Sea of Galilee is to avoid Herod. <clears throat> If he had been taken in, how would that have ended? He might have been imprisoned like John the Baptist was. This, I think, is also why Jesus, on this occasion, did not go to Jerusalem for the Passover, as he had in previous years. We know that Herod, though his, his home was in Tiberias, he would travel at least sometime, maybe all the times, down to Jerusalem for the, the Passover of the Jews. <clears throat> he would be there the next year. We know that for a fact. 
from what is given to us in Scripture. Pilate sent Jesus to Herod because he heard that Herod was in town. And if you'll just look at the beginning of chapter 7, it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, that is, down in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. And not only the Jews, but, you know, there's that dicey situation with Herod as well. And just think about this for a moment. Jesus loved the temple in Jerusalem. He called it my father's house. He was accustomed to being there for Passover feasts and other feasts, no doubt. In a way that was as much home to him as any place on earth could be. And yet here at this particular year, he did not go. He stayed up in Galilee and is even in a, a more remote section next to Galilee Can you not imagine the thoughts of his heart longing to be at that Passover in Jerusalem and not able to go because of security reasons? Does it not remind us of that psalm that I read earlier where David speaks of desiring and longing to be in the house of God and for one reason or another hindered from it? He has happy memories of previous years and previous occasions. And he says, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites. Mount Hermon is is a mountain on further north here. In other words, it speaks of, of being far north of where the city of Jerusalem is, and so on. Quite messianic there in Psalm 46. Showing us through the words of David something of the thoughts of Christ. No doubt at this Passover season when he was hindered from going to Jerusalem. Well, we must hasten on here. There's a little bit more to see in John chapter 6. We see the public demand upon Christ. Verse 2, a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. This great multitude, we will see next time, numbered in excess of 5,000, a great Number. Most likely they were on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. A group that large kind of traveling together at Passover season is most likely making their way south. But because they cross paths with Jesus, they take a detour to follow him. Perhaps they assume that they'll have time to get on down there and not be too late for the Passover season. It's really hard for us to imagine what a stir Jesus had caused among the the population of Palestine uh, in general for the past couple of years. We get a glimpse of it in these words of Matthew chapter 4. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. 
That's a region even far beyond, farther beyond Galilee. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic and those that had the palsy. And he healed them and there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. You know, religion was the life of the people. And that was true of, of most every civilization, including the Jewish world. And a miracle-working preacher claiming to be the Son of God would certainly stir up a great deal of excitement and draw everyone's attention. Some loved him, some hated him, but no one could ignore him. And we will see that the interest that this great crowd had in him was mostly a carnal interest. They were just curious. They were seeking thrills. They were seeking some personal advantage what they could get from him in an earthly way. The other writers tell us that they were bringing their sick people to him to be healed, and they interpreted his miracles as simply for their benefit rather than as proofs of his claims and, and as a validation of his teaching. They just wanted every sick person to be healed. The day that begins here at John chapter 6 is a day in which Christ was never more popular. Never more popular. And so it is today. <clears throat> Christ is popular with many today. Many have an interest in him that amounts to nothing more than the interest that this multitude had in him. They're seeking after miracles. They want something outlandish and unusual to wow them and awe them. Or they're seeking some earthly benefit for their own selves rather than a spiritual benefit that is everlasting. Prosperity, uh, earthly prosperity and bodily health drives the feet of many to follow Jesus to this day. But they miss out on the greatest of his miracles. They miss out on the new birth, regeneration, the pardon of sins, the gift of eternal life, and peace with God. Their view of him, I say, the view of many today is what we might call a utilitarian view of God. What can I get from him? What can I get from Jesus? What can he do for me to make my life easier now, to make my life better now, to enable me to live my best life now? And yes, that Jesus is as popular today as he was on this day in John chapter 6. He's popular with many because they misunderstand him. And if they ever come to understand him, he will not be popular anymore. And that's what happens here in John chapter 6, as we will see. So let me encourage you today, my friend, do not miss out on the best of Christ's miracles. Don't miss out on the best gift that he has to give, which is redemption, the pardon of sins, a new heart, new life, Life everlasting.
So this crowd sees Jesus getting into the boat. And there are no other boats available, evidently. Certainly not enough for a crowd this size. And so they begin to follow his route that he's making on water as they go on land. And they're trying to keep his boat in sight, no doubt. It says, verse 2, A great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. So they hurry on foot, going as fast as the women and children could go, going as fast as those who were sick could go. And taking all four accounts together, I think it's clear that Jesus and the, the disciples arrived there first by far. They got to the shore. They walked across that level plain, climbed up into a mountain, sat down, had perhaps a couple of hours or three hours of rest, peace, quiet, conversation. Jesus is no doubt teaching things to the twelve. And then, soon enough, that time of rest and quietness is cut short because here comes the multitude by the thousands and Jesus sees them approaching. It says in verse 5, when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him. You know, this this Passover season, while everyone's going to be down in Jerusalem and Jesus can't go, it's the perfect time for a little... Shall I say vacation? But it was not to be because this crowd interrupted and they come and they find him. It shows us something about our Lord, doesn't it? How self-sacrificing he was. He sees this crowd, this crowd of thousands coming. He's in a way tried to get away and have a little rest from them. So what does he do? Does he run and hide? Does he look for a way to escape? Or does he run them off? Not at all. Luke tells us he received them. And the picture we get in our minds is that Jesus comes down from that mountain with his disciples and greets the people. He has compassion upon them. He's not an aloof, unreachable, untouchable Messiah, but he is one who is available and one who cares about the people. So different from some that I've read about today that have to have their own private jet because they just can't stand to be in an airport with people all around them because they come up to us and, and bother us. No, Jesus was always willing to be bothered. He's so self-sacrificing and self-denying The other evangelists tell us that he taught them many things there that day and healed their sick. Oh, how he labored for their good, spent himself, though he was tired and weary. He gives himself for them. He is the good shepherd who has a heart of concern and compassion. And denies himself for the sake of others. This beloved is the Savior with whom we have to do. And isn't it wonderful to see him at work? Yes, it lets us know that our faith in him is not misplaced at all. Let us marvel and rejoice to have such a gracious, approachable, compassionate, Savior, who thought no price was too great to give for our redemption. That's what we see in these opening verses of John chapter 6.
He traveled to where we are, came from heaven to earth, lived, ministered, died, rose again to accomplish the redemption of all who believe in him. Let us rejoice in this Savior. This is good news. Oh, this is good news. I'll just close with that. I'm hearing a lot of bad news. Are you? Every day, there's something new, something worse than the day before, it seems. And even if you just follow events on a superficial level, it's all bad If you follow on a more profound level, the deeper you dig, the worse the news is. And you think perhaps ignorance is bliss. Beloved, the only place for good news is in the Word of God and in looking to Him who is the way, the truth, and the life. The good news is a Savior has come. And yes, He lived 2,000 years ago as a man in Palestine and he, he traveled around and he taught the truth of God and he, he wrought mighty miracles. And yes, we love to read of him and follow his travels and, and catch every detail we can about where he went and and how he got there and and what he did and what he said and and what he ate and where he slept. We we love to follow his every move. And even more, we love to follow him in our heart and trust in him and look to him as our Savior and our Lord knowing that we will soon enough follow him right on into heaven and be with him and see him as he is. Let us satisfy our soul with him today. This is the good news. A Savior has come. Let us rejoice.